Blog Talk Radio. Right, it's in the VIBLE Life Answers for Most Important Questions, and that's Go Fish starting us right with Truthy Toll Radio here with the VIBLE. And I, you might hear some background noise when I'm outside today um, where I'm doing my broadcast. And I'm going to get you started with the lesson. Let's see. Uh, hold on a bit. Uh, move a scroll thing. Okay. Um, our lesson today is by John MacArthur, and it is called the Unfathomable. Excuse me, sorry. It is called the preaching the Unfathomable 
riches of Christ. That's here on Shufi Tall Radio. And sorry, I'm trying to get to find it on the, the refresh. Hold on. Uh, thanks for listening to Truthy Tall Radio. You can uh, check out more about us at truthbetoldradio.com. Truth, that's T-R-U-T-H-B-V-E, told, T-O-L-D, radio, that's R-A-D-I-O.com. So check that out today. And here we go. Got the lesson. Sorry about that. You have heard music that was designed to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to take you to a portion of Scripture that does the very same thing. And we're there already in the last uh, few weeks, so go back to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, as we are working our way through Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And I want to read the opening 11 verses of chapter 3. We've considered them in past weeks, but I want to bring us up to date. Ephesians 3, 1, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of His power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a profound portion of Scripture for many reasons, but I want us to focus on verse 8 and a very important statement regarding the Apostle Paul who says to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. This grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Now remember, the Apostle Paul is an apostle to the Gentiles. And as we've already learned in chapter 3 and back in chapter 2, Jewish people and Gentiles were full of hostility and hatred toward one another. There was a lot of historical reason for that. And when the New Testament arrived and the church was established, Paul had the very difficult task 
of declaring both to Jew and Gentiles that there was no longer a distinction in the people of God, no longer a special covenant nation as there had been under the old covenant, namely Israel, but rather that Jew and Gentile were equal in one body in Christ. And all the unfathomable riches of the Messiah, which is what the term Christ refers to, were available to the Gentiles to the same extent that they were available to the Jews. This was very difficult for Gentiles to understand because they saw Jews as a bizarre kind of religious cult. This was even harder for the Jews because they saw Gentiles as blasphemers, enemies of God, and enemies of their nation. So Paul had this very difficult task of communicating that Jew and Gentile are one in the body of Christ. This is the church. It was such a tough message that it brought about into Paul's life immense hostility from the Jews. A riot started in Jerusalem. They tried to kill him on the spot. A Jewish mob did. He was rescued by the Roman soldiers, taken into protective custody. Eventually, he was a prisoner for years. He went to Rome. Eventually, an axe chopped off his head and he was martyred. What precipitated all of that was not so much what he had said to the Gentiles, but what he had said to the Jews about Jew and Gentile being one in Christ. That was a hard message for them to swallow. And I said last week, unity in the church is a very difficult thing to achieve. There is a spiritual unity. All who are in Christ are one with all others who are in Christ. He that is joined to the Lord is one spirit with all other believers. But the practical outworking of that unity is a great challenge. And I think it can only happen when we become focused on the person of Jesus Christ. As we gaze at His glory, 2 Corinthians 3.18, we're changed into His image from one level of glory to the next by the Holy Spirit. And as we become more like Christ, then we become more like each other. Christ has to be the focus of everything in the church. And Paul declares that in that eighth verse when he says that it's in Christ where all the unfathomable riches reside. Everything we need for life and godliness is found in Christ. And so he was overawed by the fact that he had been given a grace, certainly a grace, a mercy from heaven to preach the unfathomable riches of Christ. This is the highest calling. This is the noblest task that any human being can ever do. This is the most exalted work. This is the sweetest joy. This is the task that is the most serious, the most impactful, the most necessary, the most honorable, and the only earthly task that has eternal value. No behavior, no behavior comes close to the significance of preaching the unfathomable riches of Christ. And Paul says this a lot of ways in his writing, and I will remind you of a few of them just to set it in your mind. In Romans chapter 1, verse 15, he says, So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation 
to everyone who believes, to the Jew first in chronology and also to the Greek or the Gentile. I am eager to preach. I am not ashamed to preach. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, he acknowledges the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. In chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, he says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. He was eager to preach. He was eager to preach in the power of God. He was eager to preach Christ and Christ crucified. In Colossians chapter 1, as he comes to the end of that chapter, he says in verse 27, God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. His objective was to preach Christ, to preach the unsearchable, unfathomable, untraceable riches in Christ and so that everyone who heard and believed could be made complete in Christ. And do, do remember Romans' familiar portion of Scripture in chapter 10. We can begin at verse 14. How will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? The message is clear. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches, for all who call on Him, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they hear without a preacher? The most important task there is, is to be the preacher of the untraceable, unsearchable, unfathomable riches that are in Christ Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 4, 5, Paul therefore says, We do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for the sake of Jesus. This is the high calling of the preacher. Honestly, I am reluctant to even comment on the low, shallow, man-centered preaching that dominates our day, tickling listeners' ears with notions that make them feel better about themselves. Paul preached not the dignity of man, not the satisfaction of man's fallen heart desires, not the potential of man. He preached not man, but man's Redeemer, man's Savior. He did not preach principles of human achievement 
or pathways to human success or even moral reform. He preached salvation from sin through Jesus Christ. Paul did not preach to please people. He preached to convict them of their sin and convince them of all the glories available to them in Christ that would everlastingly overcome the sin and its sentence of eternal death. Paul did not preach to make people better in this life, but to introduce them to the Savior who would rescue them from hell and bring them into the glory of the life to come in eternal heaven. It's little wonder then that in Galatians 6.14, Paul said, May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8, Paul says this, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, human ideas, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in Him you have been made complete, and He is the head over all rule and authority. And in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The unfathomable riches of Christ bound up in salvation. People ask me frequently, more frequently, I guess, than uh, you might be expecting, as you study the Bible and have done it for all these years, do you, do you discover anything new? Only every day, only every time I pick up the Scripture, I have a finite mind, and it's far more finite than any of you might imagine. And I cannot comprehend the infinite realities of Christ and the ways of Christ, the riches of Christ are untraceable to me. The Word of God and the revelation of Christ is literally incomprehensible as to its fullness. I always say I feel like a... I feel like trying to grasp all of Christ is like standing on the shore of the Pacific Ocean and trying to sweep it back with a broom. I, I can't even begin to comprehend what Christ is in all His glory. His riches are unfathomable. That language is borrowed from Job, by the way. Back in the fifth chapter of Job, we read, But as for me, verse 8, I would seek God, and I would please my cause before God, who does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. I think we are well aware that that is true, that God 
is incomprehensible, that His ways are unsearchable, untraceable, unfathomable. Oh, we know enough about Him to be redeemed by Him and to serve Him, but we also acknowledge that He is far beyond our comprehension in His fullness. Listen to the ninth chapter of Job. Job begins to talk about God in verse 5. He says, It is God who removes the mountains. They know not how when He overturns them in His anger. And it is God who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. It is God who commands the sun not to shine and sets a seal upon the stars. It is God who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea, who makes the bear Orion and the Pleiades, the constellations and the chambers of the south. Then this tenth verse, who does great things unfathomable and wondrous works without number. Were He to pass by me, I would not see Him. Were He to move past me, I would not perceive Him. Were He to snatch away, who could restrain Him? Who could say to Him, what are you doing? The unsearchable ways of God then were clear way back in the patriarchal period to those in the time of the early patriarchs as marked out in Job. God's ways are unsearchable. The New Testament version of all of that is found in Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. So if you're wondering whether you could focus on Christ for a lifetime and uh, run out of material, the answer is no, not even close. You're merely, at best, scratching the surface. The riches of Christ are beyond our ability to trace. In fact, in Romans 10.12 it says, The same Lord is Lord of all, Jew and Gentile, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. The riches are unfathomable, incomprehensible, boundless. And they're in Christ. Riches is the word plutos. Wealth, abundance. Riches is probably the best translation. Unfathomable means it can't be explored. It can't be comprehended. It can't be traced. It can't be tracked. It can't be discovered. So we're looking in Christ at a, at a treasure that is inexhaustible. Inexhaustible. In Him are all the riches of heaven. Go back to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. Then he goes on to list them. Things like divine election, sovereign love and predestination, adoption, redemption, forgiveness. He lavishes on thing, things on us out of the treasury of the un, 
unfathomable riches of Christ. This goes on all the way down to verse 14. Now we're talking about heavenly things, right? Ephesians 1.3 We have received all spiritual blessings in the heavenly. So let me stop right here and say we're not talking about earthly blessings. We're not talking about the horrendous prosperity gospel. There's no promise you're going to have a bigger car, bigger house, bigger bank account, better job, get a promotion, or be healthy. There's no promise of that. The promises of God in Christ are not tied to this fleeting life, which is a vapor that appears a little time and then vanishes away. But how marvelous is it that the riches in Christ are eternal riches, and they come out of the treasury of heaven. They are in the heavenlies. He talks about the heavenlies so much in Ephesians. We just read it in chapter 1, verse 3. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Down in verse 20 of that first chapter, it says that He brought Christ out of the grave, raised Him from the dead, seated Him at His right hand in the heavenlies. And then made Him the one who is over all of, of, of His people and all creation and is the head of the church and the ruler of His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. It's again heavenly riches. Down in chapter 2, you find the same thing in verse 6, that God has in Christ raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenlies. You find it in chapter 3, verse 10. The manifold wisdom of God is to be known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies. Well, this is synonymous with God's everlasting eternal kingdom. So the riches that are in Christ are not temporal, earthly, passing riches. They are eternal riches bound up in His kingdom and only for those who live in the heavenlies because they live in His kingdom through faith in Christ. So what exactly are these riches? Well, we can start with Ephesians. Go back to chapter 1, verse 7, and we can find specifically some things that are mentioned there in Ephesians, and we'll look at those to start with. Ephesians 1, 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. So, first of all, one of those riches is the riches of His grace. He needs a lot of grace because we need a lot of grace. His grace is rich. It is rich enough to forgive all our sins. It is rich enough to forgive all the sins of all the people who will believe through all of human history. It is rich enough to keep on forgiving us and forgiving us and forgiving us and forgiving us as long as we live in this world. It is boundless, rich grace. Down in verse 18 of that same chapter, chapter 1 of Ephesians, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? Not only is His grace rich, but His glory is rich. 
In other words, He has future plans for us to give us an inheritance. If you go over to chapter 2, verse 7, you see the same thing. In the ages to come, He will show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What are the ages to come? Eternity. In eternity, He's going to keep lavishing us with endless grace. His grace is rich to forgive our sins here and now. His grace is rich enough to pour out everlasting kindness on us in eternity. And that is the glory that is rich to provide our eternal inheritance. Look at chapter 2 and verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, mercy means He comes to us in our weakness. He comes to us in our inability. He picks us up when we are hopeless and helpless. And His mercy is rich because of His great love with which He loved us. He loves us with such a lavish love, such a profound love. Paul talks about it as having height and depth and length and breadth. This lavish love extends the riches of His mercy on us, covers us with His own righteousness and supplies all our needs. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. Paul is praying here and he prays that the, the, the Father would grant you, that is believers, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. So we've seen the riches of grace for our justification. We've seen the riches of mercy and the riches of grace for our glorification and our eternal inheritance. And here is the riches of His glory deposited in our sanctification, strengthening us with power through the Holy Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may settle down and be at home in our hearts. The riches of Christ have to do with our election, as we read in chapter 1. They have to do with our redemption. They have to do with our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification. And they are lavish to cover all of those areas. Justification, sanctification, glorification. In Romans 9.23, Paul says, God made known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory. How rich does glory have to be to take us into His eternal presence? We who are so wretched in our sin. Riches for our election. Riches for our justification. Riches for our sanctification. Riches for our glorification. All of this brings us through the redemptive plan into that eternal inheritance waiting for us. In Colossians chapter 2, we can add to that verse 2 that their hearts, Paul is desirous of this, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining, watch this, all the riches that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ Himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is the, this is the riches of truth 
the wealth that brings us understanding and grants us by that understanding full assurance of our standing and our salvation and our present and our future. The truth that grants us the knowledge of God's mystery. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That is why in chapter 3, verse 16 of Colossians, Paul says, let the word concerning Christ richly dwell within you. Is that what dominates your conscious mind? Is Christ your preoccupation? Do you gaze at His glory and therefore be changed into His image from one level of glory to the next by the Holy Spirit? That is the Spirit's work. When the Word of Christ dwells in you richly, when the riches of Christ are deposited in your mind and in your life, what happens is you begin to be able to speak with all wisdom in teaching and admonishing. You begin to worship with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing with thankfulness in your heart to the Lord. When Christ is your full preoccupation and you are lavished with the riches that are in Christ, you become wise. You become a worshiper. You become thankful. And then verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, you do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. You become thankful. It's when you are literally living in the lavish reality of divine riches that are yours in Christ because you come to know Christ so deeply, because you study the revelation of Christ in His Word so that the Word dwells in you richly. All the richness of Christ is only deposited in your life when you understand the Word of God. That's what makes you wise. That's what makes you a true worshiper. That's what gives you joy and gratitude and helps you to live to His glory. In Hebrews chapter 11, there's another look at the riches from a different angle, going back to Moses. And Moses chose, verse 26, Moses chose the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses was living in Pharaoh's palace. Moses had all of the Egyptian wealth at his disposal. It meant nothing to him. He chose rather the reproach that came with focusing on the Messiah to come who, who wasn't going to come for a long, long time. But Moses was looking ahead to the riches that come from heaven that were basically going to be earned in the arrival of Messiah, but were already available to those who were faithful. And he chose that over the treasures of Egypt. I can tell you that there are certainly many people sitting in churches these days who would gladly take the treasures of America, whatever they are, before they would ever think of a reproach that might be on them for Christ because they're looking for something now and not the reward that comes in the future. You know, Paul went through so much in his ministry, so much suffering, and he gives us an insight into why he did that in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 4. He talks about 
endurance, affliction, hardship, distress. Verse 5, beatings, imprisonment, tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the Word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Why did he go through all of that? To some he was a hero, to others he was an enemy. Why did he submit himself to that? Verse 10, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. I mean, virtually he had nothing of this world's goods, but he had all the heavenly riches that were in Christ. Is that not enough to preach Christ? What gross disregard there is in so many pulpits of the call to preach Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I think of it so often as I hear, whether it's on the internet or television or radio, people preaching or talking or whatever you call it, and I'm always asking, Lord, why don't they preach Christ? What more can you want than all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies? What more can they want than to be made complete in Him? But it seems that they are happy to tickle people's ears. It's a privilege to preach Christ, and I just wanted to establish that based on what Paul said and say a few things about it that come out of this text back to Ephesians 3. It's a privilege to preach Christ, but you have to understand some things before you run to go into that responsibility. I mean, we all give testimony to Christ as believers. But to embark upon this most sacred task with the greatest accountability and responsibility and the greatest potential for chastening from the Lord Himself, you want to stop and think about what you're doing. Stop being so many teachers, James says, because there is a greater condemnation. If you're thinking of being a, a preacher of Christ, hopefully you're actually thinking of being a preacher of Christ, the un fathomable riches of Christ, that, that would eliminate many preachers just that. Just leave us with those who preach Christ and forget the rest. But if you're thinking even to do that, and it is the highest calling, the noblest task, the most serious duty, the supreme joy, there are a few things you need to understand. And I'm going to give you just a few of them that are in this text. We're talking about heavenlies here. So you're preaching Christ, you're preaching the, the riches of Christ in the heavenlies. So, so basically you're connecting with heaven, not earth. You're connecting with heaven. And you're asking to draw down heaven. And you don't want to rush into that. So there are several things you need to recognize. One, this is a heavenly calling. This is a heavenly calling. Look at... Verse 6, the last word, gospel, the gospel. Then verse 7, Paul says, Of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me. 
Now, I know the gospel must be preached. Romans 10, 14, how will they hear without a preacher? But, but how do I know that I am to be the minister who preaches the unfathomable riches of Christ? Well, you say, for Paul, it was easy. He's on the road to Damascus, and the Lord interrupts him, makes him blind, knocks him down, calls him into ministry. You can read about it in the ninth chapter of Acts. Paul had an unmistakable calling into ministry. In uh, 2 Timothy 1, he talks about Christ Jesus and says that in verse 10, He has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher. Paul never had any doubt about his calling. He had been appointed by God as a preacher, and he uses the terms in verse 7, of which the gospel, of which I was made a minister. That's a passive verb. I was made a minister. It wasn't something I sought on my own. It wasn't my desire because I thought I had certain skills or I thought I could be successful. It's not an entrepreneurial decision to make. I was made a minister. And by the way, minister is the word diakonos, which means a table waiter, which means a servant. I was made a servant, a waiter. Now, if you were made a minister, then you recognize, and if you are only a servant, you recognize that you were made a servant under someone else's authority. And it is the authority of Christ Himself who has all authority over His church. So Paul knew that he had been made by the Lord Himself a servant and a preacher. That's why in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16, he says this, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For I'm under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. If you don't preach the good news concerning Christ and you were called to do that, condemnation is then pronounced on your head. Paul says in verse 17, If I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Nobody should ever engage in preaching the unfathomable riches of Christ who doesn't have a heavenly calling. Paul understood that. He says, I, I don't deserve a reward for this. It's required of servants that they be faithful, he said. So, if I don't preach the gospel, woe is me. In Colossians chapter 1, twice, in verse 23 and 25, he makes that same statement. End of verse 23, Colossians 1, I, Paul, was made a minister. Verse 25, of the church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for, the, for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. Now look, I know we're talking about an apostle, but the principle is nonetheless the same. If you're going to engage in this of, of all tasks, you need to have a heavenly calling. And so the immediate question comes, if I don't have a Damascus Road experience, how do I know if I have a heavenly calling? And I would suggest... Briefly, there are five things you need to know to ascertain that you have a heavenly calling. Number one is internal, a strong desire. Paul talks about 
desiring the work of the ministry. A strong internal desire. A a restlessness in your soul. A desire that's so strong that it excludes all other desire. Secondly, a strong external encouragement. In other words, there are people around you that know you that are pressing upon you and saying, you need to do this. You need to preach Christ. You need to be in ministry. Thirdly, a loving concern for for others because you're going to spend your entire life giving yourself away for other people. Because the grace gift that's given to you is for them. So a strong internal desire, strong external encouragement, and you have to be defined by a loving concern for others. That often is missing among people in pastoral leadership who are there because they want to promote themselves for their own for their own glory, grandeur. There's a fourth principle, and I think this is very important. An overwhelming constraint to know and speak the Word of God. An overwhelming constraint to know and speak the Word of God. Strong desire in the heart. Strong encouragement from those outside. Loving concern to give your life for others and an overwhelming constraint to know and speak the Word of God. And fifthly, confirmation by the church. Confirmation, like Paul said to Timothy, you were confirmed in this ministry by the laying on of the hands of the elders of the church. I mean, you may have a more um, unique call to ministry. You may feel like there was an incident or a message you heard or a sermon or a book you were reading or some moment in uh, time when the Spirit of God prompted your heart and you felt that in some ways heaven had touched you. I'm not saying that's not true, but I am saying these are the things that need to mark someone who steps into this calling. It is a heavenly calling. And Paul was made a minister, and I read you three times where he says that, and then he says, if I don't preach, I'm under a curse. You need to feel that kind of constraint. But there was more behind Paul's ministry. Not only a clear understanding of his heavenly calling, but a clear understanding of the need for heavenly power. Go back to verse 7. The end of the verse, according to the working of his power, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given. He always talks about his call with grace. Third time he talks about grace. He says, look, I have nothing to offer. I have to minister according to the working of his power. Because as far as I'm concerned, I'm the very least of all saints. And even doing this is a grace work of God. Grace gives the calling and grace gives the power. Again, comparing what he said in Colossians, and he wrote these two epistles at the same time. Listen to Colossians 1.29. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power which mightily works within me. Striving according to His power which mightily works in me. How do you know when it's God's power and not yours? When it's not just successful, but it's spiritually life-transforming. 
when the effect of your ministry is not more people, but different people, transformed people, regenerated people, sanctified people, then you know that your proclamation of the Word, energized by the Spirit, is transforming them on the inside. The measure of a man's ministry is not the size of the congregation, it's the spiritual life of the congregation. Because therein lies the work which only the Holy Spirit can do. Paul knew that in the 15th chapter of Romans and verse 15. I have written very boldly to you on some point so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God. It's always grace because He's so unworthy. Grace to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Ministering as a priest the Gospel of God so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable. Why? Sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He didn't want to do anything in the flesh, anything in human energy, nothing about human effort had any interest to Him. That's why I read you earlier in 1 Corinthians 2, I didn't come to you in human wisdom, enticing words of human persuasion. In verse 18 He says, I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through Me. It's all about what Christ has accomplished. It's all about the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what sustained Paul. In 2 Corinthians 4, he says, I love this, we have this treasure of the Gospel in clay pots so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Why? Because, as he says in verse 8, I am the very least of all saints. I am the least. In, in Romans 7 he says he's a wretched man who has not yet been delivered from the body of death. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Listen to his testimony. It's remarkable. 1 Timothy 1, verse 11, he says he's been given the gospel of the blessed God as a trust. And in verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into ministry. There it is again. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. How do you go from being the foremost sinner to being the preacher of the unsearchable riches of Christ? It's mercy. It's grace. He uses both those terms. Now, what about the sin in his life? Did that not disqualify him? The weight of the sense of sin on Paul comes not from the amount of transgression on the outside, but the sense of sin on the inside. When sin gets to the outside, you're disqualified. Qualifications are laid out in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Paul is not saying that I'm counting up the amount of transgressions on the outside. He's simply saying there is always the incessant battle 
on the inside. But he could also say in 2 Corinthians 1.12, my conscience is clear that I've conducted my life in a blameless way. How do you get to the place where you're that humble? I'll tell you one way not to get there, by promoting yourself, by building your brand, whatever that means. There's one way to get to this kind of humility. It's pretty simple. Just focus on Christ your whole life. He'll crush you under the weight of His glory. Anytime you hear a proud preacher, you're listening to a man who has no real, clear love for and understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when you come to Christ and you plunge into the untraceable riches of Christ, you lose all pride. It's a crushing reality. Focus on Christ produces humility. Humility leads to power. Second Corinthians 12, Paul says, when I'm weak, then I'm what? I'm strong. God's power is perfected in my weakness. My weakness. There's a third thing you have to recognize before you run into this responsibility, not only a heavenly calling and heavenly power, but heavenly truth. Now, look at verse 9. Paul says, this is the task, to bring to light. That's exposition. To bring to light. What is the stewardship of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things? What is that? We know what that is. Go back to verse 3. He talks about the revelation that came from God regarding the mystery. In verse 4, he says he had insight and could provide understanding into the mystery of Christ. And what was the mystery of Christ? It was something that was hidden, verse 5, in the past and is now revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. And what is it? That the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. It's the Gospel. And it's the one body made up of all people. No male, no female, no slave, no free, no Jew, no Gentile. We're all one in Christ. And that is the Gospel. So, in verse 9, he says, My calling is to bring to light, just to turn the light on, what is the stewardship of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. In other words, my job is to turn the light on revelation. And in particular, the New Testament, which is where the mystery are all explained. So, another way to say it is the third thing you have to consider if you want to do this is that you'll give your whole life to heavenly truth. Heavenly truth. Heavenly truth. And by the way, the New Testament isn't done by some other deity because the one who has revealed this mystery is the same one, Paul says, who created all things. So we don't have one God in the Old Testament and another one in the New. And the fullness of that truth is what you saw back in chapter 1. Verse 18, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, 
which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, seated Him at His right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power, dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of all who fills all in all. The full sum of the Gospel. So you're going to give the rest of your life to heavenly truth, not earthly information. And finally, you must consider not only a heavenly calling and heavenly power, but heavenly truth and then the heavenly purpose. Why are you doing it? Verse 10. This might surprise you. So that... Here's the purpose. And the word purpose even appears in verse 11, as you'll note. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenlies. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. This might shock you. What is God's purpose in us? Preaching the unsearchable, unfathomable riches of Christ. So that the manifold wisdom of God in the Gospel might come to the church, be known through the church, but that's only the intermediate objective. The final goal is to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenlies. We do what we do in order to bring the multifaceted, multicolored display of divine wisdom in all that connects to our redemption to the church and then through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies. Who are they? Angels. Angels. Does that sound strange to you? But that's exactly what he's saying. What is God's goal in this whole redemptive plan? To put the church on display to the angels. Verse 11 says, This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. His purpose was not to save sinners. That was an intermediate goal. His purpose ultimately was to put on the display of saving power to the holy angels. Holy angels. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.12, angels desire to look into these things. No, no angels were redeemed. The fallen angels were eternally dismissed from the presence of God assigned to the lake of fire. There's no salvation among angels. So angels have no experience of mercy or grace or forgiveness or transgression or redemption. But they are very interested in that. They are absorbed with knowing the fullness of God's glory and to see redemption and grace and mercy and forgiveness and salvation and justification and adoption and all the facets of salvation, they have to look outside themselves. Paul makes the statement in 1 Corinthians 4.9 that we are spectacles to angels. Spectacles to angels. Do you remember Luke 15? What happens in heaven when a person is redeemed? The angels rejoice. The angels rejoice. Paul in 1 Timothy 5.21 charges Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of His chosen angels. 
They're watching you, Timothy. 1 Corinthians 11.10, they're watching how women conduct themselves in the church. They desire to look into these things. Hebrews 1.14, they are ministering spirits to the church. It is only through the redemption of the church that the holy angels can see the full panoply of the multicolored wisdom of God. They learn of God's power in creation. They learn of His providence in history. They learn of His triumph over sin and death and hell through the unfolding plan of salvation. They learn it from the redeemed church. Let me close with having you look at Revelation 5. It's a glimpse of heaven. And uh, those in heaven, we'll pick it up at verse 9, including angels and redeemed souls. They sang a new song in heaven. This is a picture of heavenly worship. Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Here are the angels, along with the glorified saints, praising God for a salvation they couldn't experience but saw through the church. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. And I looked, in verse 11, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures who are four particular angels, and the elders who are the redeemed. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, referring to the angels. All of a sudden, all the angels in heaven are saying this, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. How do they know that? They see it through the church. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be glory, blessing, honor, dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures who were angels kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So, God uses the preaching of the unsearchable riches of Christ to build the church, which then becomes to the angels the demonstration of the manifold wisdom of God that extends beyond anything they personally experience. So what is the goal of what we do? Eternal worship of saints and angels. Is there any higher calling than that? Let's pray. Father, thank You for the truth. May Christ be exalted, lifted up. May His unsearchable riches continually be discovered by us as we faithfully gaze into His glory on the pages of Holy Scripture. Thank You for this revelation. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible Teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website at gty.org. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. Desire to God for things agreeable to His will in the name.
between you and God But then Jesus Christ came and paid it all When our Lord was crucified Before this time, our sin advice meant we could only come to God with fear But now through faith in the risen Christ We can pray and God will hear And though we can't see Him, He's close not far So it really doesn't matter how old you are Because of Jesus, the Heavenly Father smiles on you Because you're now a child Convergent Evolution? This is Ken Ham, editor of the popular series of apologetics books, The New Answers Books. 
The world is filled with astonishing examples of similar designs among unrelated creatures. Well, here's one example. Flying squirrels and sugar gliders. Both look very similar and both have special membranes that allow them to glide. But they're not considered to be closely related at all. Now, similarity is supposedly evidence of common ancestry, except when it's not. Then evolutionists say it's because of convergent evolution. This is the idea that evolution produces the same designs over and over in similar environments. So this means any feature could just happen to evolve an infinite number of times, which isn't science, just imagination. Get answers to your questions about creation, evolution, the age of the earth, and more at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be equipped and encouraged when you visit AnswersRadio.com. Down. 
there death and suffering? This is Ken Ham, inviting your family to visit the Ark Encounter during Christmas. Today is the 80-year anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor and when America entered World War II. Anniversaries like this one often make people wonder, why is there death and suffering if there's a good God? Well, the Bible explains why. God created a perfect world. There was no death or suffering, no sin, no war in this original creation. But the first two people rebelled against God and brought death and suffering into creation. After they broke creation, every person is now a sinner. Horrible things like war are a result of man's sin. But praise the Lord, he's coming again and he'll make a new heaven, new earth. Plan your visit to the Ark Encounter at AnswersRadio.com. Children 10 and under are free this month and our Christmas programs have started. That's AnswersRadio.com. My God is so big and so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big and so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big and so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big and so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God
a planet that's one of a kind. This is Ken Ham, author, blogger and speaker on Genesis and all of the Bible's reliability. Which planet's known as the jewel of the solar system? Well, Saturn. This giant planet is made almost entirely of liquid and gas. It's huge. But its density is so low, you could throw it in a giant bathtub and it would float. Saturn's very different from Earth, obviously. Our planet is solid, and so are Mercury, Venus and Mars. Now this is a puzzle to secular astronomers. If our solar system formed from a spinning cloud of dust and gas, why do we have both kinds of planets? Other solar systems only have one or the other. Our solar system has such beautiful diversity because it didn't evolve, it was created. Discover more about the truth of God's Word, science, and more when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be equipped and encouraged when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. All right, here we go, kids, gather round. A brand new sound to praise the one who has the crown. In today's lesson, we'll talk about the Holy Bible, the most important book we all need for survival. The Bible is God's message for this world. It's for every man and woman, every boy and girl. And that message is that if we turn to Christ and place our trust in Him, we'll have eternal life. Now when we're at church, yeah, it's fun, it's cool. When we hear a lot of stories in Sunday school, like Jacob and Noah, Moses and Daniel, David and Jonah, Joseph and Samuel, but all the little stories tell one big story about the God who made all things for his glory. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. Where should we begin? When God made the whole wide world just by speaking. By his great might, he said, let there be light. The light he called day and the dark he called night. He made the earth and the seas, the dirt and the seeds, the herds and the trees, the birds and the bees. But the big surprise God had up his sleeve. On day number six, created Adam and Eve. Made in the image of the beautiful most high. God told them, be fruitful and multiply. Everything's yours, but that tree do not try. Because in the day you eat it, you're surely going to die. I'm sure you know the rest. Yes, they failed the test. And ever since then, the world has been a big mess. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero, and his name is Jesus. When we read God's word today, the greatest saints had their flaws on full display. And it was written down for us in order that we may recognize that Christ is the only way. Adam ate forbidden fruit and lost his life. Abraham got scared and lied about his wife. Sarah laughed to herself when she heard God's promise. Rebecca encouraged her son to be dishonest. Aaron used crafts to make a golden calf. Moses got mad, struck the rock with a staff. David sinned greatly, 
even lost his baby. And Jacob, he was just all around shady. The point is not to make light of our flaws, but to show that every one of us needs to cross. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero, and his name is Jesus. Young Rings, this is Ken Ham, and Christmas time at our Noah's Ark attraction has begun in northern Kentucky. The jewel of the solar system, Saturn, is surrounded by thousands of beautiful, intricate rings. Now, the spacecraft, Cassini, spent 13 years exploring this incredible planet, and during that mission, it measured the gravitational pull of Saturn's rings, and it confirmed they're too light to have lasted for billions of years. Cassini also measured dust coming from outer space. It found the rings are too clean to be old. Researchers were forced to conclude Saturn's rings must somehow be young. This doesn't surprise those who start with God's word. We know Saturn's rings are just a few thousand years old, created by God for His glory. Plan your visit to the full-size Noah's Ark at AnswersRadio.com. Kids 10 and under are free this month, so bring the whole family. Plan your visit at AnswersRadio.com. Deconstruction is a word being used by many who leave the Christian faith. They might say they deconstructed their faith, disassembling beliefs and ideas they had about the church or tradition as if they experienced an intellectual awakening. Now, it's certainly good to test faith and tradition to see if what we believe and practice honor the Lord. The Bible says, test everything. But the result is that you should hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Deconstruction is not doubt, examination, or asking questions. It's rebellion. It does not seek to understand, but undermine. It will not deconstruct, but demolish, until what's left looks nothing like biblical Christianity, deceived by heresy and sin, especially sexual immorality. According to Daryl Harrison, deconstruction is another woke term attributed to Jacques Derrida, a staunch defender of Karl Marx. The evangelical church must be more discerning in this regard. What many call deconstruction, the Bible calls apostasy. In Jeremiah 2.19, the Lord says to a rebellious people, Your evil will chastise you, and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you. Hebrews 3.12 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin when we understand the text. Something my father shared with me just a couple of years ago. We're sitting in the living room and he asked me, uh, Stephen, what are the three most common affirmations concerning God? Straight out of my mouth, God is holy. Nope, not the top three. God is sovereign. Nope, not the top three. So I give up. What are the three most common affirmations concerning God in Scripture? Number one, God is good. Number two, 
God is able. And number three, God is faithful. Well, praise God, because ability divorced from goodness and faithfulness is something to be dreaded. But his ability coupled with his goodness and his faithfulness makes him a worthy object of our trust. Maybe, just maybe, my fellow Bible-thumping, wingnut Christian, you have been so fixed on God's sovereignty, his holiness, his righteousness, his justice. He's a consuming fire that you have forgotten. Yeah. God is good. God is able. God is faithful. And because of Christ, you receive all of these things, all of these attributes of God. They are yours because of Jesus Christ. Um, Houston, I think. Welcome back to Wretched. Forget the Geneva Convention. We're going to interrogate our Bibles so we can read them better. Let us take a look at a list of questions that you can ask of your book before you start reading it so you can understand everything that was happening around it. And I mean everything, including who wrote it, to whom was it written, what were the circumstances at the time, will help you to understand it better. There are more questions like, from where and to where is the author writing? What? What difference does that make when we know that Paul was writing from a prison to the Philippians, talking about joy? It makes a difference. When we know that the Corinthian church was located in a very rascally part of the Mediterranean with all kinds of wickedness going on, with all kinds of paganism taking place, with all kinds of Diana worship, with cultic prostitutes in the temple. Yeah, that probably makes a little bit of a difference when you read First and Second Corinthians. Another question, the number four, when was this particular book written? What does that have to do with the price of tea in Texas on Tuesday, potentially? A lot. Was the book written before or after 70 A.D.? Why that number? Not because it's a lucky number, but because that is the year the temple fell. Well, that might change a few things when you read Jesus' words in the Gospels, talking about the destruction of the temple. It might mean a lot when it comes to fulfilling prophecies in First and Second Thessalonians, knowing when the book was written probably going to change your end times theology question number five what is the situation both parties what were they going through number six understanding the times and history so important were there pagan practices slavery no slavery what were the general attitudes ask questions about slavery in the first century before reading the book of philemon what are you going to learn? Most people were in that state of service. In some instances, it felt more like an employer-employee. Other times, it could be pretty nasty business with a cruel slave owner and somebody who was just pretty much not human. How do we know that? Because of the name Onesimus. It simply meant useful one. It wasn't a personalized moniker. 
recognizing recognizing somebody's humanity. It's just useful one. Get me my tea because apparently they were they were British then too. We learn about slavery by reading from other sources from inside of the Bible itself what this institution was like. There could be kindness. There could be cruelty. Slaves were regularly not even considered human. Now read Philemon. Paul is writing to Philemon, who apparently had some money and owned at least one slave who had stolen some of that cash from him and then ran away to go where? Rome, which is where most slaves would run for the sake of anonymity and not being returned to their masters. Who does he bump into there? That's right, the Apostle Paul. He gets saved. And Paul tells us that he really is a useful one. And now, Philemon, he's really going to be useful to you because he's your brother, so receive him. Why was that request necessary? Because the slave owner could have killed him just as quickly as he could have embraced him. And Paul says, your brother's coming home, and now he's really going to be useful to you. Receive him, knowing all of that. Does that help you think about any other Bible verses that Paul wrote? How's about your thinking Galatians, where Paul recognizes that in Christ there is no longer Jew, Gentile, male, female, rich, poor, slave, free. What were we seeing in Philemon? We were seeing Galatians 3 revealed in technicolor. This is what it looks like when two people are slaves, uh, were once slaves to sin. Now they've been made free in Christ, and they are in him, and now they are brothers together. What do we learn from Philemon when we understand the historical context in which that book was written? We learn the gospel is powerful. This is what I would like to do, Cody. I have some Bible verses on the subject of worship. I am going to read this Bible verse, and you are going to tell me what it means or what it doesn't mean, based on the Bible verse without reading into it. I get to choose either to tell you what it means or to tell you what it doesn't mean. You can do whatever you want. Okay. All right. Let's do Second Samuel 6.14. David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. Go. Um, when you dance in church, wear linen. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for making it. Right. Therefore, David danced in church. Dancing in church is biblical. Huh? Can I use this for a text? Sure. So you don't have a problem with dancing in the church? I do. But this verse says, David danced. You can use whatever you want to use, right? All right, well, um, tell me why. But first of all, David wasn't in church. Okay, fair enough. That's but he, was, he did it in worship. David wasn't in church. He was, in, he was worshiping the Lord. Yeah. Very excited about the ark. He was very excited about the ark. Yes. Yes. Um, we don't have an ark. Well, oh, we don't have a king. But I could do that with any. We don't have it. But what I'm saying is that when we read this, we have to read this text in its historical context, right? In order to understand okay, what's so happening so here, okay? Right? So, because the other thing is this: narrative is not normative, right?
right? It's a very important principle of, of exegesis. Narrative is not normative. Just because something happened doesn't mean that it's supposed to happen normatively. But, there, but right? there's shadings on that. You know that. Supposed to versus can yeah. happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how's it about if I say to you, okay, fine, what so do I can, give you? So can, can a person, can I dance in church? Yes. Just kind of like to see that. Would you maybe just humor us and show us a couple of moves? Not a chance. <laughs> okay, no, okay, this is actually, let's, let's, let's keep diving on this. So David isn't dancing in church, so I can't say, so for example, David, David for example, I can dance. Yeah, you can't, but that would be more akin to we've excommunicated someone, and we're here at worship, this person we've excommunicated, it was a painful experience for the church, we've been praying for this person, their life just went to the pit, and God saves them and brings them back, right. and they walk through the doors. There might be a little dancing. That's more akin to what's happening there. An emotional, you know, sort of outburst in response to a circumstance as opposed to here's how we're going to organize our worship. Fair enough, but there is explicit and implicit. So could I not use this as an implicit text to say, look, it's not a sin to celebrate and worship the Lord by moving your body. Sure. Therefore, this verse still gives me permission to do that. Uh, not commanded. Not when you went to the therefore. Not when you Why not? You were okay to the therefore. What ha- well, how do you apply it? Then? Well, because here's the thing. Why do we want to do this? Why do we want to make this a normal activity for I, us? I wasn't saying to make it it's commanded. I'm saying it's, this verse gives us permission to express ourselves in joyful worship to the Lord by busting a move. <laughs> you could do it. Not commanded, but it gives me permission. You could do it. You're humoring me now, aren't you? You just want to be done with this. You, no, you can do it. I'm okay. waiting. All right. Let's do John. You're not going to do it? Oh, waiting for me to do it? You got to, you know what, do, do something that makes me happy, and maybe I'll get down with my bad self. <laughs> that was Tosh Rio and Vody Welcome. Tosh Rio is the host of Wretched, which is, where that clip is from and you can look on YouTube and find more about that and then also wretched or wretched.org they have their radio show and TV show so please check that out and now this one is this is a clip that says everyone thinks this exists the Bible says nope Do you remember the famous saying, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas? In other words, if you come to Las Vegas, you can do whatever your sinful heart desires, and we won't tell a soul. No one will know about it. Even though we make reference to something being a secret, we know from Scripture there's no such thing. Listen to what Jesus said. For nothing is secret that shall not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. Do you have any secrets? Any secrets? Yeah, secrets. What we think is unknown is actually known by God because of his omniscience. There's not a dog that scratches nor flea that coughs that God doesn't see. But more than that, he sees the very atoms that make up the eyelashes of that scratching dog and that coughing flea because he made those atoms and put them in place. When thinking about the infinite knowledge of God, the psalmist said, 
Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain to it. Now, this knowledge should do more than leave us in awe. It should help us hear the Lord. Listen to the context of the scripture. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Notice that his omniscience demands accountability. In other words, what happens in Vegas isn't going to stay in Vegas. It's going to come to light on the day of judgment. The thought that there's not a heart that beats that isn't heard by God should make our hearts give a beat. This is because everything we do or think will have consequences. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether it is good or evil. But there are some who quote Romans chapter 2 and say we shouldn't talk about God's wrath, but his goodness, because it's the goodness of God that brings us to repentance. If that's true, we'd better talk to the Apostle Paul, because in Romans chapter 2, when he spoke about the goodness of God bringing us to repentance, he sandwiched it in wrath. You say, but isn't that fear tactics? It certainly is. Years ago, there was an advertisement on television which showed a couple of dummies in a car, and they wanted to show what happens to someone if they don't wear a seatbelt. And they asked the question in a deep voice, what happens to a dummy if he doesn't wear a seatbelt and he's in a head-on collision? What goes through his mind? And then they show in slow motion the steering wheel crushing the head of that dummy, and they say, the steering wheel. You could learn a lot from a dummy. Fuck your safety belt. That was fear tactics, but it's legitimate fear tactics because if you get into a head-on collision and you're not wearing a seatbelt, it's a fearful thing. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Jesus said, fear not him who has power to kill your body and afterwards do no more, but fear him who has power to kill your body and cast your soul into hell. Yes, fear him. Listen to Psalm 147. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his mercy. What pleases God? When we fear him. Why? Because we will trust in his mercy. Fear, in this case, is a good fear. It's like a fear that causes you to put on a parachute. That's a good fear. The fear of the consequences of violating the law of gravity cause you to put on a parachute. That fear is doing you a favor. And when we fear God, it does us the ultimate favor that drives us to the mercy of God in Christ. So what do you think? Beard or no beard? Let me know in the comments. Now watch this. You think there's an afterlife? Yes, I do. Now why are you so adamant? Mm, I'd say there's more to it than just our life on earth. Our life on earth, it's not what it seems. It's kind of futile, is that what you're saying? Futile? Yeah, like every day is kind of the same. You can do different things. You go to sleep in the morning, you get up, do the same sort of things. And if it gets boring, you get old and die. That's uh, if you're lucky. I mean, I wouldn't say it's futile. I'd say that it's maybe like it's a passing where we experience adversity, pain, every every painful moment that we've had, it's to build us into someone that we're meant to be in the future. And in the afterlife, that's where we can actually feel true bliss, joy, happiness, peace. These are things of enlightenment and higher levels of consciousness. Is this Hinduism? No, it's not. Buddhism? I don't believe so. Is it anyism? It is. I didn't 
think it's Mayism. Well, I was just going to say, well, you know, you're making this up. Shouldn't you find out the truth? <laughs> I think everyone has their different type of truth. Do you have any secrets? Any secrets? Yeah, secrets. I don't think so, no. Do you believe in God? Yes, I do. Do you think God is omniscient? Omniscient? Yeah, that he knows everything. Mm, I believe so. So there's no such thing as a secret if God knows everything. Because yeah. a secret is something you hold on to that nobody else knows. Well, does it make you feel good to know that God knows you by name, knows how many hairs are on your head, sees you in darkness as though a pure light? Does it make you feel good or a little uncomfortable? It actually makes me feel seen. Makes you feel seen? Seen, yes. You mean it gives you a sense of worth? I believe so, yeah. I believe that he's right by our side and it holds value to our lives, that there's something so powerful watching over us. Do you think God is happy with you or angry at you? I don't think you'd be angry with anybody. We're all his children. So man rapes and murders three young ladies. God's not angry at him? I think you would be very unhappy with him, but I believe that that person may have done it without knowing that it was actually evil. Because the other side, the, the devil, if you want to say, whatever you want to call it, it's probably whispering things into his ear saying, this is the right thing to do, this is right for you. Boy, that doesn't hold water in a court of law. The devil made me do it. I didn't know it was wrong. You know, we know right from wrong because we've been given a conscience, and we know that rape and murder is wrong. There's no excuse. Can you see that? Yes, of course. Any judge who dismisses a case saying the guy didn't really know what he was doing, his shoes were too tight, he had a bad upbringing, isn't a good judge. If the, if the judge is good, he must see that justice is done. And the Bible says God is good and righteous and holy, and he's, he cares about right and wrong, to a point where he says if you get anger without cause, you're in danger of judgment. Did you know that? Yes, I did. You're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount? Sermon on the Mount? Yeah, the most famous sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived, Sermon on the Mount. No, I'm not familiar. Never heard where Jesus said, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the peacemakers. Never heard that? No. Do you think you're a good person? How are you going to do on Judgment Day? You're a good person? Are you? No. Why not? Because I've broken the commandments, the Ten Commandments. Well, let me, let me apply them to you and see how you're doing. Can you be honest with me? Uh, sure. Okay, why did you hesitate? That's a good question. I'm not sure. Okay, here we go. How many, how many lies have you told in your life? Probably a lot. What do you call someone who tells lies? A liar. So what are you? Ah, uh, come on now. Uh, uh, put together. What a put together. You can say it. <laughs> this is a put together. Next question. Have you ever stolen something? Stolen? Yes. What do you call someone who steals? A, a thief? All we're doing is going through the Ten Commandments to see if you're a good person, see how you're going to do it. Is that what really dictates whether you're a good person or Yes, not? it's the only dictate. No, I don't believe so. Well, let me tell you why. God wrote the Ten Commandments in stone. They're eternal, and that's the standard God's going to judge with on Judgment Day. You shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery. In fact, our civil law is based on that. That's the foundation of civil law. So that's how we judge whether a man is good or bad, whether he goes to prison or he goes free. So let's go back to the Third Commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Have you ever used God's name in vain? Probably, yes. Would you use your mother's name as a cuss word? No. Why not? I just wouldn't. It'd be a horrible thing to do. If you hit your thumb with a hammer, you could use the S word or use your mother's name in its place because you equate the two. That would be a disrespectful, horrible thing to do. And yet, that's what you've done with God's holy name. 
used it as a cusswood from that. Yeah, but it's using it in vain. That mean, it doesn't mean anything to us. We don't give it any due honour. That's what it means to take it in vain. I appreciate your honesty. You've been real honest, even though you hesitated. Jesus said if you look with lust, you know what that is, you commit adultery in the heart. Have you ever looked with lust? Uh, I'm not completely sure if I understand that question. Look to someone with sexual desire. No. I have not. Never. That's sarcasm. Yeah. So, like, I'm not judging you, but you've told me that you're a lying, thieving, fornicating, blasphemous, <laughs> adulterate heart. <laughs> this is ridiculous. And you just use God's name in vain. So here's, here's where we're going with this. So on Judgment Day, if God judges you by those standards, are you going to be innocent or guilty? That I wouldn't know. I can help you out. You'd be guilty like the rest of us. So if that happens on Judgment Day, would you go to heaven or hell? I would go to heaven. Well, the Bible says all liars will have their part in the lake of fire. No thief, no blasphemer, no adulterer, no fornicator will inherit God's kingdom. Lady, you know what death is according to the Bible? What is it? Wages. So watch this analogy. Turn this woman around completely from mocking sin and any thought of hell to listening intently. Meaning, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. In other words, God is paying you in death for your sins. Like a judge will give a criminal who's committed multiple murders the death sentence. He'll say, you've earned this. This is your wages. This is what's due to you. This is what we're paying you. And God says sin is so serious that he's given us the death sentence. A soul that sins shall die. You and I think lightly of sin. Lying, stealing, blasphemy, fornication. Who doesn't do that? It's just cultural. But God says it's so serious, he's given you capital punishment. So your death is evidence that God means what he says. And after death, the judgment. And breaks my heart if you're going to hell. It, it brings tears to my eyes. I want you to think about what we're talking about now. Tell me this. What did God do for guilty sinners so he wouldn't have to go to hell? Do you know? He died for us. Yeah, he suffered and died on the cross. Now, almost everybody knows that, but they don't know this. The Ten Commandments are called the moral law. You and I broke the law. Jesus paid the fine. That's what happened on that cross. That's why he said it is finished just before he died. In other words, the debt has been paid. Now, if you're in court and someone pays your fine, they pay your speeding fines. The judge can let you go even though you're guilty. He can say you're out of here because someone paid you fine. And he can do that which is legal and right and just. And God can dismiss your case. He can forgive all those sins. He can take the death sentence off you because Jesus paid the fine in his life's blood and rose from the dead and defeated death. And like, all you have to do to find everlasting life is repent of your sins. Turn from them. Don't play the hypocrite. Turn from sin. And then trust in Jesus like you trust a parachute. Don't trust your goodness. That's like a man who's going to jump out of a plane and his plan is to flap his arms and try and save himself. I say to that man, don't do that. Just trust the parachute. Yeah. So, Lane, don't trust your goodness to save you. It's not going to work you like the rest of us. You have a multitude of sins. Just transfer your trust from yourself to the Savior. Is this making sense? Yes, it does. So you're going to think about what we talked about? Sure. Can I give you a book that I've written? Sure. Do you really fear death? No, not anymore. It's like a man who's going to jump out of a plane, 10,000 people without a parachute is going to be terrified. But if he's got a parachute, his fear will be in direct proportion to his faith. If he trusts the parachute, he'll have no fear. If he totally trusts it, no fear at all. And that's what a Christian has. He has faith in Jesus, and he has no fear. And he can say, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil because you're with me. You're rotten stuff that comes with me. Do you have a Bible at home? You're going to think about what we talked about. Of course. It's a very interesting conversation. Oh, I'm really pleased you feel like that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you.
David and Study Bible will give you everything you've ever wanted to know about subjects such as the theory of evolution, as well as valuable information about cults and different religions, atheism, and biblical archaeology. It also contains hundreds of quality quotes, fascinating articles, amazing scientific facts on the Bible, and so much more. It even includes answers to 200 of the most commonly asked questions of the Christian faith. The Evidence Study Bible will thoroughly enrich your trust in God and in His precious Word. Get yours at livingwaters.com. That was very comfort for the one who was speaking, and uh, he's an interviewing lady. He says in Honey and Reach, and you can find out more about him at livingwaters.com. That's L-I-V-I-N-G. W-A-T-E-R-S dot C-O, livingwaters.com, and also he's on YouTube as livingwaters, L-I-V-I-N-G, W-A-T-E-R-S, and check that his YouTube channel, and you can see more clips like that. And thank you for listening to be told radio with me and with controller. What I want to do now is invite you to get social with us. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as truth, the letter B, then told radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B. T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is truth, the letter B only, not B-E, told radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M smilesandstuff.com So stay social with us and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. That's all I got for Truth Be Told Radio. Join us next time. Our show's time is 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Sundays. And check us out. Download us. Uh, we're on on excuse me, sorry. <laughs> we're on Apple Podcasts, um, the Apple, well, shoot. yeah, it's iTunes, <laughs> sorry. Uh, thanks for listening, and we're also on Spotify if you want to uh, get our lessons there to um, our sh- this show. And thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio, and please check out if you want to, uh, let's see, you want to listen to the rest of our shows, so. This is from Blog Talk Radio. Um, I want to thank my mom. She's the one that 
helps pay for each month. And gonna go out with Yankee and friends and the VIP really. Bye for now. The